I wasn't ready for you. Oh, man. It's good to be with you guys. It's good to be with you guys. Hey, my name is uh, Garrison, and I'm the pastor here at Veritas. If this is your first time with us, thanks for being here. We're really, really glad that you are here this morning. Uh, We are a church of broken people, of sinful people, of desperate people, uh, who have a very strong and capable and sufficient and beautiful Savior. Um, and so we are gathering to hear from him and to glorify him this morning. Um, if you want to turn with me in your Bibles to Galatians 4, um, and we're going to be looking at verses 4 to 11 of chapter 4. Uh, if, if you don't have a Bible with you, uh, we have white paperback Bibles at the edge of each bench. You can grab one of those uh, and you can turn to page 566 and that'll get you where you need to go. Galatians 4, uh, chapter 4, the chapter numbers, the big number, the verses are the little numbers, verses 4 to 11. Turn to page 566 and you can read along with us. Um, Also, if this is your first time here, we have a little connect card attached to the bulletin that you received when you walked in this morning. That's just a good way for us to know um, a little bit about you, know who you are and uh, how you heard about Veritas and and, uh, what brought you to to join us this morning. Um, If you would, take a few moments, fill that out, uh, and we'd love to be able to to get connected with you, buy a cup of coffee, meet with you, answer any questions you might have about our church, and and get to know you, ask you some questions about yourself. Um, We'd love to be able to do that. All right, let's dig into Galatians 4. If you want to stand with me for the reading of God's holy and precious word, let's listen with reverence and joy. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not gods. But now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, How can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world whose slaves you want to be once more? You observe days and months and seasons and years. I'm afraid I may have labored over you in vain. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Father, we're coming from many different circumstances and backgrounds and stories to this place this morning. Some of us have faced um, difficult circumstances. Some of us have faced sleepless nights in the last week. Some of us have faced tragedies and some of us are, are... fearful about our standing before you, the holy God. No matter where we come from and and where we're at here this morning, we've come ready to hear good news. And so would you open our ears now to hear from you? 
Would you open our eyes now uh, to see your greatness, your beauty? Would you soften our hearts now to receive from you? Lord, um, would you let me, my words, um, present Jesus clearly? Lord, would you let the words of my mouth, the meditations of all of our hearts, be acceptable in your sight, our rock and redeemer. In Christ's name we pray, amen. amen. You can have a seat. In um, Numbers 13 and 14, we see one of the most tragic and frustrating stories, I, th- I think, in, in biblical history. At this point in the story, in Numbers 13 and 14, the Lord had rescued his people from slavery in Egypt. Uh, the Lord had led them through the wilderness. He had given him his law like he had spoken to them. Uh, he had provided for them food and water and clothing. He had sustained them and defeated their enemies in battle for them. He, he had worked extraordinary miracles among them. And now they're at the edge of going into Canaan, uh, what's called the promised land. Uh, they're on the edge of going into the promised land where, where there's uh, just a, an abundance of provision for them and where they're going to be cared for by God and, and where God is going to dwell among them. They're on the edge of going into this land of beauty and plenty of abundance and provision. And they send, they send spies into the land to kind of to see what's going on and, and, and get the, the lowdown on, on what's up in this land and the people that live there. Uh, and the spies return with two things. They return with fruit and a report. And the fruit is amazing. It's like really, really good. Like, uh, like I had a peach this last week that you had to eat over the sink sort of thing. Like really, really good fruit. It was great. And just after that, they gave the report. They tried all the fruit. They, they gave the report. And the report that they brought was not so great. And this is what they say in Numbers 13, 27 to 28. They say, the land flows with milk and honey. However... The people that dwell in the land are strong, and the cities are fortified and very large, uh, plus there are giants. There are, there are giants. And so the people start freaking out. They're scared to death. And, and it's like in an instant, they forgot all about that God had done. They forget all about the rescue and the redemption from slavery. They forget all about the, the promises and the provision. They, they forgot uh, about God's fatherly care for them and that he had promised that they were going to apprehend this land. And he always follows through with his promises as he proved over and over again. It will be theirs. He, he told them this land will be theirs. The fruit will be theirs. The abundance will be theirs. And he will dwell there among them. They forgot all about that, and this is what they say. They say, would it not be better for us to go back to Egypt? Let us choose a leader and go back to Egypt, which is utterly ridiculous, right? Like, we're getting tired of, of freedom. We're getting tired of God's gracious provision. We're, we're afraid that the God who had just crushed Egypt, like the, the largest of the day can't also defeat this, this, the, these people in the land of Canaan on our, on our behalf. We're, we're getting tired of God's fatherly care for us, and we just want to go back to slavery. It's utterly ridiculous. Well, this is, in effect, what the Apostle Paul hears the Galatians saying in their legalistic, their rule-based living. Uh, just like the Israelites in Numbers 14, the Galatians wanted to return to slavery, 
and their rules-based, law-based living. They'd experience the abundance of freedom and life in Christ. They'd experience the sweetness of sonship, the, the status of being God's children. They've tasted the fruit of the promised land, and now they want to live in slavery to legalism. It's unthinkable. It's senseless. It's utterly crazy. It's unthinkable to the Apostle Paul that this is the case. And so in Galatians 4, 4 through 11, we see the Apostle Paul saying that, basically to sum up what he's saying here, after experiencing the sweetness of sonship, it is unthinkable that we would then return to the slavery of idolatry by living in legalism. After experiencing the sweetness of sonship, it is unthinkable that we would return to the slavery of idolatry by, leave, by living in legalism. It's a tongue twister. And that's our sort of big idea for the morning. To unpack that, we're going to look at the coming of Christ, the cry of the Spirit, and the craziness of legalism. The coming of Christ, the cry of the Spirit, and the craziness of legalism. First, the coming of Christ. We looked at this portion of text in our last week, last Sunday together, and, and we're returning to it because it's so good and it's so rich. Last week we saw that the only way that we can be redeemed from slavery to sin and idols and made into God's adopted children is through the gospel of Jesus Christ. Apart from his salvation, we are children of wrath, we are slaves, we are dead in trespasses and sins. But Paul here, he says the best news that we could ever possibly hear. He says that when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. Now, this portion of our text tells us a lot of really, really important things about the coming of Christ. Uh, In fact, I would say this is maybe one of the most dense texts in all of the New Testament. There's so much here. We can spend weeks and weeks just sitting here. But for now, we're going to see how verse 4 tells us how he came, and verse 5 tells us why he came. Addressing how he came, Paul writes, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of woman, born under the law. So amazingly... What Paul's saying here is God sent his son. So take note that this statement assumes that Jesus existed before he was born. Okay, so, so Jesus existed before he was born of woman, before Mary the virgin gave birth to Jesus in Bethlehem, God sent him. Uh, John 1.18 tells us that Jesus Christ in eternity past existed in the, in the bosom of the Father, in the right hand of the Father. So when it says that Jesus was sent by the Father, Paul is is stating that Jesus Christ is the eternal Son of God that was sent from heaven to earth. He's he's heaven's ultimate ambassador, like like an ambassador sent from another country. He, he, He is heaven's ultimate ambassador coming to us, the eternal Son of God, who existed in perfect intimacy, in perfect relationship and pleasure with the Father for all of eternity, came to us. Jesus, the eternal Son of God. He is the, by nature, He is the Son of God. And He entered into our fallen world, into our brokenness, into our life, into our humanity. Literally, in Jesus' coming, God Himself entered in. And He entered in, born of woman, born under the law. 
So the eternal son of God, he came, born of woman, born uh, of a teenage, poor teenage mother. He was laid in a manger, a feeding trough. He messed his diapers. He nursed at his mother's breast. He became a helpless babe. And not only that, but he also was born under the law. The lawgiver, the the judge of those who don't keep the law, came and subjected himself. He placed himself under the law. He subjected himself to all the ceremonies and obeyed them in all perfection. He was pure and true and good. He was born of woman and born under the law. And if you were here, you might remember when we first started gathering on Sunday mornings as a church, uh, we started with this two-week sermon series called The Beautiful Christ. And we spent the first Sunday looking at the humiliation of Jesus, and the second Sunday looking at the exaltation of Jesus. And we saw that Jesus, although he is the Son of God, God himself, he did not count this equality with God a thing to hold on to, but he emptied himself and he took on the form of a servant. He became a servant and he humbled himself to the point of death, even dying on a cross in the most uh, humiliating and, and, and painful way possible, dying on the cross, being executed by mere humans. He was the highest king, but he descended to the lowest of lows for us. As Luther tells us that when he looks at this text, he says, Christianity does not begin at the top. It's not this like top-down thing where, where the good and the righteous and the 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 the, the uh, the powerful uh, make it, and, and the weak and the, the detestable are left to the side. It doesn't begin at the top, as all other religions do. It begins at the bottom. It begins in the manger. It begins on the cross. It begins in Christ, who was born of woman and born under the law. And why did he subject himself to the lowest of lows? Why did he come in such a lowly state? Verse 5 tells us to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. So he came in such lowliness to redeem us lowly slaves and to bring us up to where he is. He came to live under the law and even died under the curse of the law. As we saw in Galatians 3, when we spent time in, in Galatians 3, so that we would receive the blessing. He became what we are to make us into what he is, namely, a son of God. He died on the cross on Calvary. He took on the wrath of God and the penalty that our sin deserves. He took on the wrath of God that we deserve. The eternal, sinless son of God suffered and died and did so in our place. He died in our place so that his perfection, his righteousness, his acceptableness before the Father and his sonship would all become ours. So listen, No one who is in Jesus Christ is just a forgiven slave. No one who is in Jesus Christ is just a citizen who's been put in right standing with God the King. It's not just like you've been forgiven of all that stuff and now you you better just not screw it up. Don't mess it up from here on out. That's, That's not what this is. It's not as if you're getting like a fresh start and a redo, but God's keeping his eye on you. He's ready to zap you. That's that's not what this is. It's not as if you're just a slave with a new master who's kind of, uh, kind of good. It's not what this is. He has called you his own child, and he is utterly delighted to do so. 
So listen, all who are in Christ can boldly claim all that Christ is and all that he has for their own. All that he deserves, all that he has before the Father is transferred to us. All that he is, we can claim before the Father is ours too because we are one with him. He is perfectly righteous, and so God has declared that we are too. He is God's son, God's beloved son, and so God declares that we are too. His prayers are heard and answered by the Father, and so are ours. He's God's rightful heir, and now we are too. He has been raised from the dead, and so we will be too. He He's the king of the cosmos, reigning over all things, and we will reign with him when he returns. He is going to live forever in the world without end, and we will live with him forever in the world without end. Everything necessary, everything needful for our salvation is found in Jesus. We needn't look anywhere else. He's totally sufficient. I began to to quote Luther earlier, but let, let me finish what he says about this text. He says, Christianity does not begin at the top as all other religions do. It begins at the bottom. Therefore, whenever you are concerned to think and act about your salvation, whenever you're concerned to think that you need to like do some stuff to earn a right standing with God, whenever you're concerned to think and act about your salvation, you must put away all speculations about greatness, all thoughts of works, traditions, and philosophy, indeed the law of God itself. And you must run directly to the manger and to the mother's womb. Embrace this infant and virgin's child in your arms and look at him. Born, being nursed, growing up, going about in human society, teaching, dying, rising again, ascending above all the heavens and having authority over all things. In this way, you can shake off all the terrors and errors as the sun dispels the clouds. So what that means is that no matter how sinful you are, how lowly you are, how despicable you are, Christ entered in and became lowly to redeem the likes of you. He entered in and became as we are, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem us who are under the law, those who are lowly and sinful, and to make us what he is, to make us sons, to make us God's children. And then he didn't stop there in the work of adoption. Paul goes on to say, and because you're sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father, So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. So the son comes and he accomplishes the work needed for our adoption, for us to become children of God. And the spirit comes to assure us that it's all true. Or in in Romans 8, 15 and 16, Paul puts it this way. He says, you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father, The Spirit himself, listen, the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. Now this this language here about crying out, Abba, Father, is communicating um, like, like really intense feeling, crying out with great intensity. We call God our Abba. 
which is the, the Aramaic term of affection used by children addressing their fathers. It's, it's like saying, dear dad or, or, or papa. And Paul is saying here that, that part of the work of, of the Holy Spirit, part of what he does is, is to give us assurance of our adoption by putting these words on our lips when we call out to God in prayer. He assures us of our sonship by giving us the ability to call God our Abba, our Father. Now, I think if we went around this room and we took like an anonymous poll amongst all those who are Christians, that probably most of us would, would say that we objectively know that we're God's beloved children. Like, hopefully you know, if, if you've been here for any amount of time, hopefully you know that, that by what's regularly taught here and what's been explicitly taught in Galatians here recently, Christ, his work on the cross, his resurrection, God's promise in him, they all bear witness to the reality uh, that God is gracious and he keeps his promises, including his promise to adopt those as children who have faith in Jesus Christ. All of those things take place outside of us. They are sure and true. They are as sure and true as Christ is raised from the dead, which he is. These things are objectively true. But when we start talking about experiencing the reality of our sonship and assurance and having like a feeling sense of it, I'd say that's probably another story. And I know, like, we're reformed and we don't talk about experiences and feelings and all that stuff all that much. We start to get uncomfortable. And yes, I, I know that we shouldn't let, like, our, our feelings and subjective experiences control everything. Our sonship is purchased by Christ and it is objectively true. It doesn't base whether or not, it doesn't change based on whether or not we feel it. But Paul is saying here that the Spirit was sent into our hearts and that he cries out within us. He he internally witnesses to us and assures us that we are God's beloved children. He, He does this by giving us a feeling sense of our adoption. That, that we are loved, that we, we are objective. It's true, we are loved, we are accepted, we are seen, we are heard by the God of the universe. We are cherished by him. And one of the things that the Spirit does, that the indwelling Holy Spirit does, is he lets us experience it. Like he gives us a feeling sense of our adoption. My dude, John Stott, put it this way. He said, God's purpose was not only to secure our sonship by his son, but to assure us of it by his spirit. He sent his son so that we might have status of sonship, but listen, he sent his spirit that we might have an experience of it. So the spirit takes what is always true of those in Christ, that we are children of God, that we are seen and heard and known, and he brings that truth to bear upon our hearts in a miraculous way, leading us to cry out in desperate prayer, to call out in desperate prayer to God the Father. God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Russell Moore tells a, a story that I read this last week about when he began to understand the, the cry of the Spirit in greater magnitude. He writes in his book on adoption about the story of his wife and him 
going to Russia to adopt these twin boys. This is what he says. The creepiest sound I have ever heard was nothing at all. My wife Maria and I stood in the hallway of an orphanage somewhere in the Soviet Union on the first of two trips required for our petition to adopt. Orphanage staff led us down a hallway to greet the two one-year-olds we hoped would become our sons. The horror wasn't the squalor and the stench, although we at times stifled the urge to vomit and weep. The horror was the quiet of it all. The place was more silent than a funeral home by night. I stopped and pulled on Maria's elbow. Why is it so quiet? This place is filled with babies. Both of us compared the stillness with the buzz and punctuated squeals that came from our church nursery back home. Here, if we listened carefully enough, we could hear babies rocking themselves back and forth, the crib slats gently bumping against the walls. These children did not cry because infants eventually learn to stop crying if no one ever responds to their calls for food, for comfort, for love. No one ever responded to these children, so they stopped. The silence continued as we entered the boys' room. Little Sergi, now Timothy, smiled at us, dancing up and down while holding the side of his crib. Little Maxim, now Benjamin, stood at straight attention, regal and czar-like. But neither boy made a sound. We read them books filled with words they couldn't understand about saying goodnight to the moon and cows jumping over the same, but there were no cries, no squeals, no groans. Every day we left at the appointed time in the same way that we had entered, in silence. On the last day of the trip, Maria and I arrived at the moment we had dreaded since the minute we received our adoption referral. We had to tell the boys goodbye. As by law, we had to return to the United States and wait for the legal paperwork to be completed before returning to pick them up for good. After hugging and kissing them, we walked into the quiet hallway as Maria shook with tears. And that's when we heard the scream. Little Maxim fell back in his crib and let out a guttural yell. It seemed he knew, maybe for the first time, that he would be heard. On some primal level, he knew he had a father and mother now. Listen, God the Father has given us full rights as sons. We're not orphans. We're not slaves. We are seen. We are heard. We are loved and accepted in all of this completely in Christ. God, God has drawn us into almost frightening intimacy with himself. You have the ear of God. You, you are seen by him and heard by him. And the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, wants you to feel that. He, he wants you to know, he wants you to have a feeling sense of this enormously important reality. Like, understand, these things are not hypothetical. Like, forgiveness is not this theoretical thing. Adoption is not theoretical. These are real things. This is not some theory that we're talking about. These are real, weighty Things. It's the real deal. Adoption is the real deal. Christ's work on the cross, his resurrection is real, and the Spirit of the Son of God dwelling in us assures us of this that these things are not theoretical, that they're not this abstract thing going on out there that have nothing to do with us. These are real. 
In Christ, there are no slaves. There are only sons. We are not left on our own to just figure it out. Like, you're not left on your own to figure it out. You have a father who is near to you and walking with you, who loves you, who hears you, who speaks to you in his word. If you are in Christ, God has adopted you, and he is near, and he sent the spirit of his son to cry out within your heart, Abba, Father. This is the the greatest privilege J.A. Packer once wrote that adoption is the highest privilege that the gospel offers, higher even than justification. To be right with God the judge is a great thing, but to be loved and cared for by God the Father is greater. Amen. And that's what makes what is happening in Galatia so crazy and so senseless and foolish. They and, and, and we have been given the highest privilege in the universe. Like, what, could, what else could you possibly want than being good with God, not just as judge, but as father? They were told, they, they believed that the gospel could only get you so far, that forgiveness only got you so far, that, that being brought into sonship only got you so far, but then you had to make up where Christ lacked you know, like the sort of he's the main dish, but you need some supplements to make up for where he lacks. That's, that's what they were believing. That's what they were being told. And so Paul tells the Galatians, this is just craziness. He says, formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not God's. But now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world whose slaves you want to be once more? You observe days and months and seasons and years. I'm afraid that I may have labored over you in vain. So before Paul had come and and preached the gospel to the Galatians, they they worshipped idols. They worshipped false gods. They were enslaved to those that by nature are not gods. Uh, And he might be referring to like the, the emperor worship Uh, That was very common in the Roman Empire of the day. Uh, Roman citizens confessed that Caesar was Lord and they burned a pinch of incense in his honor and and worship of him. Or he could be referring to the worship of this, I guess, the Anatolian mother goddess. This would have been common for uh, in in the regions of Galatia for them to worship the Anatolian mother goddess. We don't know exactly what he's referring to here, but what's stunning is that Paul compares the Galatians' legalism as a return to that. He he compares their legalistic, rule-based, law-based living as a return to that. That the Galatians believed that circumcision and adherence to the Jewish calendar were necessary, necessary for salvation was a return to the slavery of idolatry that they had lived in before. Now understand that the Galatians, they hadn't renounced Jesus. Right? They, they, they hadn't even denied that they were in need of God's grace in some measure. They, they, they hadn't started building and bowing down to little statues of, of, of Hercules or the Anatolian mother goddess and, and sacrificing baby goats to them. They hadn't done any of that. They hadn't done any of that. 
Like if, if you were in Galatia in 50 AD and you decided to go visit First Baptist of Galatia on Sunday morning, like you, you might not even notice that anything was necessarily really wrong. They, they probably looked like a normal church, good, nice, moral people. They would have probably said a lot of reverent things about Jesus. They hadn't renounced Jesus. They weren't bowing down to statues, none of that. Rather, listen though, they were denying the sufficiency of the person and work of Jesus. They were denying that we are saved through mere nude faith in Jesus. They were denying that Jesus is enough for full and free and eternal salvation and adoption. They were denying that Christ, his death, his resurrection were enough to purchase their sonship. That in order for them to be truly accepted by God as sons, that they needed to add to the work of Jesus. They were seeking up, they were seeking to pick up Christ's slack by adding works into the equation. In other words, they, they needed, they thought that Christ needed their help in saving them. And Paul is saying here that their legalistic struggling, their rule-based living, in, in doing that, they are returning to the slavery of idolatry. He's saying that the Galatians. And implementing these practices and deeming them necessary for justification is the same as if they had just gone back to emperor worship. If they had just gone back to, to uh, digging up their old Anatolian mother goddess statue and bowing down to it in their basement every morning. And the reason that Paul says this is because to live by legalism and law is to trust in oneself for justification and salvation. And to trust in oneself for salvation, to trust in oneself rather than the one true God is idolatry. Trusting in something other than the one true God is by definition idolatry. Trusting in your own works, trusting in yourself, trusting in your own righteousness is idolatry. And in all reality, to say that we are saved by Christ plus our own efforts is the same as bowing down to little statues in your basement. And so Paul says, you've tasted and seen the goodness of Jesus. You have experienced the sweetness of sonship in him and by his spirit. The spirit of God's son has been sent into your hearts and crying out, Father, within you. And so to return to the slavery of idolatry by by living in legalism, it's just crazy. It's like leaving like a a delicious steak on the table to go eat what what the dog leaves for you in the backyard. Or if you're a vegetarian, like a black bean loaf or whatever you eat. It's like, it's like leaving a, a, a bottle of Pappy Van Winkle and drinking Natty Light. It's like turning off Johnny Cash to listen to legalism, or to listen to Nickelback. That's, that's what it's like. That's what it's like to go from sonship to legalism. Now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world whose slaves you want to be once more? After experiencing and enjoying the beauty of Christ, the wealth of salvation in him, the status of being God's very own child, it is utterly foolish and crazy to return to the slavery of idolatry by living in legalism. Before we close, let's, let's dig in a little bit in what legalism looks like. Legalism is, is rule-based living. It's, it's living by law. It's living as a slave when sonship is being offered to you. And because legalism takes on different forms, it, 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 you know, it doesn't just look like it did in Galatia. It can look like any number of things. 
Because of our sinfulness, it's also a very sneaky thing that can creep in and easily and go unnoticed. And so let's really quickly look at four types of legalism. This can be a kind of diagnostic tool that you use to determine whether you're living in legalism or not. Four questions to diagnose whether you're being legalistic. First, are you requiring obedience to commandments that were for a particular time but are no longer necessary? Are you requiring obedience to commandments that were for a particular time but are no longer necessary? So one of the things that we need to understand about the scriptures and about the covenant that God has made with us in Christ by making us his children has come in two different stages, the stage of promise and the stage of fulfillment. In the promise stage, before the coming of Jesus, uh, there there were certain rules and commandments that uh, the people of God were commanded to keep that are no longer enforced now that Jesus has come and fulfilled them. And this is what the Galatians were, were screwing up, okay? They, they were holding to some of the requirements that were given in the promise stage, like circumcision and, and following the Jewish calendars we see in Galatians 4.10 here. Those, were, those things were shadows that were pointing us toward Jesus, but now the substance is here and we no longer live in the shadow. I, I know, like, on the one hand, that may not seem like something that's incredibly relevant to us here today, but... Uh, I, I'd say it's probably more calm than we think. I remember, for example, we used to have a, a roommate several years ago um, who didn't eat pork. And, uh, and he, he was a Christian. He, he thought he should be following the Old Testament dietary restrictions. Uh, and, and so he didn't eat pork, and, and he, would just, he would chastise me for eating bacon all the time. Um, and to which I just decided to eat more bacon because I like enjoying sonship and bacon. But listen, we, we, don't, we don't move on to varsity-level Christianity by adding these additional requirements that are no longer necessary. Jewish calendar, circumcision, dietary restrictions. We don't need anything else other than Jesus Christ to set us apart for himself, to sanctify us, and, and to, to make us his own. Therefore, we do not require obedience to these commandments that were for, for, that were for a particular time but are no longer required in the fulfillment that Jesus has brought. So second, are you living by the letter of God's commandments but not the spirit of God's commandments? For example, Jesus, Jesus addresses this in the Sermon on the Mount um, when he talks about the, the commandment to not murder. Okay, so you may not go around murdering people, which is good, but do you harbor resentment? Do you nurse resentment against others? Do you insult others and hold grudges? If so, then you are in spirit breaking the fifth commandment. Friends, reducing the Christian life to mere external behavioral restraints is a deadly form of legalism. It looks good, but it's deadly. It's deadly. Life in Christ does not address mere behavior. Life in Christ goes down to the deepest recesses of the human heart. The the spirit of the Son is sent into our hearts, transforming our hearts, calling us to live in the spirit of God's commandments, not just by the letter. Are you living by the letter, but not the spirit of God's commandments? Third, are you requiring obedience to the doctrines and commandments of men? So this form of legalism is is not satisfied with what God says and commands, but requires obedience to what, uh, in addition to, to what God says, what men, mere men say. 
When churches require their members to do things like homeschool or to not drink alcohol or to wear certain kinds of clothes or to use a particular translation of the Bible and other things along those lines, they're creating law where the Bible has not spoken. They're, they're adding, they're legalistically heaping burdens on the backs of others. Are you doing this in your own life? Are you adding the doctrines of men, the commandments of men in order to feel superior? Are you doing this in your family's life? Are you requiring obedience to the doctrines and commandments of men for your family, for your children? And then fourth, are you requiring any sort of work or performance? Are you requiring any sort of work or performance as necessary for salvation? As necessary for being accepted by God? Good works come from life in Christ. Life in Christ does not come from good works. We have to get that order right. And if we flip the order in any way, we've denied the gospel of Jesus Christ and we are legalists, enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. So if you're living in legalism, under any of these four categories of legalism, any of these forms of legalism, if, you're, if you are requiring obedience to commandments that are no longer required, or if, if you are externally adhering to God's commandments but inwardly don't desire to love God and others, if, if you're requiring any sort of work or performance for salvation, if, if, if any of these are true, you are a legalist. And if you are a legalist, then you are walking in idolatry and you need to repent and believe the gospel. Repent and believe the gospel. Legalism leads to hell. Law-based, rule-based living leads to hell. The gospel of Jesus Christ leads to sonship. It's utterly foolish to choose legalism and slavery when the gift of sonship is ours in Christ. Nothing could compare to, to knowing and being known by God. No, no form of legalism, no form of slavery could ever compare to that. So look to him, not to yourself, not to works, not to merit. Look to Christ. And if you do, I declare to you, you are, you are no longer a slave, but a son. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the gift of sonship in Christ. Thank you that it's free, that we don't do anything to earn it or deserve it, but that it's given to us freely at Christ's expense, what he's done on the cross what he's done in his resurrection. So would you help us to believe him now, to receive from him now, to rest on him now as we come to the Lord's table. Lord, we need you. We, are, we so easily are drawn into the siren tune of, of rule-based, law-based living in adding our own efforts to, to Christ's finished work. Would you forgive us? Would you help us to rest on him, to look to him and to no one else? It's in Christ's name we pray, amen.